Welcome to Cultural Technology. I am Bernard Dionysus Gagan. Today I am uh, in Hyde Park in Chicago uh, at the University of Chicago. I'm with John P. McCormick, a professor of political science and the author of the book Carl Schmitt's Critique of Liberalism Against Politics as Technology. Uh, first, John, thanks for speaking with me. It's very, very good to be here. Can you start by telling us, uh, John, uh, reminding us who Carl Schmitt was and when he was working, what he was doing? Right. Well, Bernard, uh, Carl Schmitt is most famous for being a conservative lawyer and legal theorist in the Weimar Republic in Germany uh, between the wars. He gained moderate fame in uh, in Weimar for being a, a pretty strong critic of the liberal democracy, which was Germany's first attempt at liberal democracy. He was a critic of its constitution. Uh, he thought it was um, schizophrenic in a certain way, torn between liberal and democratic elements. Um, he was critical of the Weimar Constitution, that it wasn't clearer on the, the fact that uh, emergency powers are necessary in moments of crisis, and the Weimar Republic was beset by crises uh, frequently during its short life. Uh, and he was involved in uh, trying to authorize President Hindenburg's attempts to stabilize the crisis that eventually brought the Republic to an end. Uh, and when that failed and the National Socialists came to power, when the Nazis came to power, they asked Schmidt to join them and to be their chief legal uh, advisor and official. And that's when the famous Karl Schmidt became the infamous mm-hmm. Karl Schmidt, and he became a very uh, devoted, enthusiastic supporter mm-hmm. of the Nazi regime uh, and participated, I think, most egregiously in helping to purge German law schools of Jewish professors. Um, then, uh, But his um, his time of favor within the Third Reich was very short. By So he joins the party in 33. By 36, he's already lost influence. He's already discredited. Uh, more radical, more truly uh, people who were raised to be Nazi lawyers um, supplanted him in influence in, in Germany. Um, and so he um, uh, continued to write throughout the Third Reich, but um, but his influence was, was very small. And uh, after the war, he, uh, he was interrogated by uh, the Allies for, for supporting the, the Nazis. He spent, I think, a, a year in, a, uh, in an internment camp and uh, he started his process of rehabilitation. He started to try to rehabilitate himself. He, he refused to undergo the denazification process mm-hmm. that, for instance, Martin Heidegger underwent so that he could uh, return to teaching in German universities. Schmidt refused that. He said, uh, I, w- I was never Nazified. Why should I be denazified? Mm-hmm. So he never taught again. And so yeah. he became this kind of phantom presence in his little town of Plettenberg where very, very important and influential intellectuals of both the left and the right would visit him uh, during the post-war years, and his influence uh, spread uh, through, unofficially and indirectly, through these uh, informal associations. And he lived a very long life. He died in the 80s. Um, He was uh, close to 90, if not over 90, so he lived a a very, very long life. And so for um, for people who if people have heard of Schmidt, uh, if they're not, say, political scientists or mm-hmm. experts on Schmidt, if they've heard of him, they've probably uh, heard of 
two things. He's known for uh, a definition of the political, a concern with the political, and also for uh, a celebrated definition of sovereignty. Yeah. Can you remind us what these uh, what these two things were and what he said? Exactly. Well, those two ideas uh, are found in Schmidt's two most famous books. Uh, the first, from 1922, Political Theology, is the work which starts with the uh, amazing first sentence, Sovereign is whoever decides the exception. Uh, and he... Uh, went on from that point to say that if, if liberal democracies don't have someone who makes an ultimate decision, who has the authority to make the final decision over what is and isn't ordinary circumstances, then it doesn't have sovereignty. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you don't have a figure like he argued, uh, the Reich's president of Germany was the sovereign because the Weimar Constitution granted him the power to dis- as the embodiment of all the people who elected him, the power to decide what is and isn't law. Law itself cannot decide what is and isn't mm-hmm. law. Somebody outside the law decides. And he approximated this power to the power of God uh, and God's power over the miracle, and that an exception in the political world was very much like a miracle in the uh, in the religious world mm-hmm. connected to divine authority. And so uh, sovereign authority was somehow connected to this quasi-miraculous element called the exception. So that's political theology, 1922, his theory of sovereignty, its connection to the exception. Uh, The second idea you talked about, the political, it pertains to Schmitt's, the concept of the political, originally published in 27, and then published as a full-length book in 32. Uh, The concept of the political also has an arresting, uh, if not first line, uh, early line, where he says the essence of the political is the distinction between friend and enemy, and that politics is about the distinction between friend and enemy. And human life is composed of many distinctions. There's no uh, human life is not uh, characterized by a unity. It's characterized by these concepts that themselves have oppositions within them. So, for instance, uh, the aesthetic realm has beautiful and ugly. Uh, the religious realm has uh, uh, pious and impious, the moral realm has good and bad, and the political has friend and enemy. And that there is no way, there is no polity, there is no political organization that has ever existed Mm -hmm. without an opposite other, which is its enemy. Mm -hmm. And politics is fundamentally about those decisions uh, of one grouping of human beings to say we are different than that grouping of human beings and we will fight to the death to combat that other grouping, to defend our own way of life. That's Mm -hmm. the fundamental political distinction for Schmidt. Mm -hmm. One of the things that jumps out about both these distinctions, um, anyone who's read Schmidt, he's very, uh, he has a strong poetic sensibility, Mm -hmm. incredibly uh, philosophically erudite, um, uh, intimidatingly erudite, uh, but also in the way you present them, these these yes. are very practical principles. Yes, uh, you know, and I, I, it's, I, we were talking about this before we started recording. You know, it's it's hard to even say that because one doesn't want to say, oh, you know, that that fascist he had some really practical ideas, <laughs> but 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 he does join together these incredibly philosophical concepts with yes. things that sound like a, a plan for for action. Yes, exactly. Well, he he thought, um, despite the fact that he you know, came from a, a particular political viewpoint uh, and had his own political biases, but he thought he was presenting political fundamentals 
that could not be disputed. So he he thought one of the one of the reasons he's so provocative and he writes so provocatively is he thought that the the liberal milieu of Weimar was deluded about certain things that it had that liberals have this idea that you can have government without authority. So for instance he 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 considers liberal political theory anti-political theory because it's mm-hmm. all about constraining authority rather than enabling mm-hmm. authority and that that's so that the fundamental questions of politics the fundamental questions of just and unjust, right and wrong, are, are questions of how to deploy authority and, and mm-hmm. what authority and what does what does government do? It's not about limiting what it does. And so, so he thought um, that he was confronting his era, which was dishonest and self-delusional about political reality, by saying you cannot avoid the authority question. You can't avoid decisions, mm-hmm. as he said. Liberal liberal constitutionalists of his day, liberal. Uh, legal positivists have this fantasy that uh, you set up a constitutional system and the statutes just 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 kind of regulate human life. As he says it in political theology, they have this assumption that the machine now runs itself, which ties into our technology theme, uh, that, that somehow modern constitutionalism could be just a web or a system of self-regulating laws. And he, he said that's an avoidance of the fundamental question of who decides mm-hmm. and that uh, people decide. Human beings make decisions. The judges who apply those laws don't mm-hmm. do so mechanically because they can't do so mechanically because they're human beings. Mm-hmm. And so there was always an element of, of, of trying to shock uh, his audience. Same thing with the political. The idea that the, um, the friend-enemy distinction is the fundamental core of political life is an answer to the liberals of his day who, who want to say that no, we're going to have a. Uh, there's going to be a world of uh, commercial success and commercial abundance, and conflict will be avoided. And so, you know, part of his audience were very pro-French and English uh, and American, the, the liberal de- democratic powers that beat Germany in the war, um, and sided with their view that uh, we World War One would be would have been will be a war to have ended all wars. And that uh, global governance will be peaceful commercial trade. Schmidt said, "That's that's a that's a lie. That's mm-hmm. the human nature will never yield that." And the Allies and look at how they behave toward Germany, even when they pretend to be just pursuing their commercial interest. They're treating us like we've signed a peace treaty with them, and they're still treating us like enemies. Mm-hmm. When we don't, when we can't afford to meet our reparations, they invade our country. They invade, they invade the war, and they they seize our our industry. That's an act of war. Mm-hmm. They call it a police measure, or they call it a a juridical uh, uh, intervention. But that's war, mm-hmm. and so you're. You liberals are fooling yourselves if you think that the uh, the English and the Americans and the French are going to stop behaving politically. That is, in a way that's mm-hmm. uh, mortally dangerous. And even worse than that, he thought, uh, speaking to the the leftists in his, uh, and he had lots of leftists, lots of Marxist students. Um, if you think the Soviet Union is going to take over the world. Um, and that that will bring peace and that there will be a universal workers' paradise, well, that's going to be even worse mm-hmm. than if the liberals win because they don't, even, they don't even believe in humanity as being something more than material to be manipulated. And even if the Soviets did um, conquer the world, that, that empire would inevitably break up because of the political conflicts that would bubble up uh, within it and beneath mm-hmm. it. And so 
So by saying the political is the unavoidable, the impossible to sidestep decision over friend and enemy, and the fact that human beings will resort to lethal violence, to mortal combat, to defend ways of life, uh, to avoid that question is to be uh, divorced from reality. Mm -hmm. And so those were his... Uh, and he, as you said, he wrote very eloquently and very persuasively. Mm -hmm. He had a real, as you say, poetic... Uh, somebody once said, um, for, for a lawyer, he could make legal briefs read incandescently. Mm -hmm. Because he had an, a tremendous way with, with language. So one of the things uh, you do in your book is you trace these these well-known doctrines that were elaborated in the 20s and 30s uh, to some of his earlier work, I would say less widely read work, um, that was critiques of liberalism uh, and also certain types of commentaries on technology. Mm. And you argue that Schmidt's critique of liberalism goes hand-in-hand hand with a particular critique of technology. So could you say a little bit about what's the relationship between either uh, liberalism and technology or politics and technology mm. for Schmidt? Sure. This is a... Um, he saw liberalism as... A political liberalism as indicative of the age of technology where people were under the assumption that all problems could be reduced to technical problems and that if we just we just get the technical mastery of X problem we could solve there will be no conflict mm -hmm. so if we we have a problem of, of scarcity and people that assumes that people fight mostly because of scarce goods well if you provide abundant goods they won't fight anymore and Sch Schmidt was saying no that's being that's being deluded by a way of thought that thinks that human beings only care about material matter that people only care about security that they only can, can care about consumptive goods uh, pleasures of the body uh, and that that's not human nature and that technology itself gives us a world view in which we forget what human nature is so for instance in an early work uh, Roman Catholicism in political form Schmidt, uh, and Schmidt was a Catholic, he was a Catholic jurist, um, he said that in, in technology, the modern Catholic can see the greatest approximation of the Antichrist. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, technology has the opposite view of the world than the Roman Catholic view of the world. Roman Catholics see human beings as inherently good, capable of sin, but inherently good because they are because Christ, God became man in the person of Christ. Every human being is therefore part divine. Every human being has the capacity to, ch to choose good over evil. Um, and the purpose of social life is what he called the normative guidance of people's lives so that they choose good rather than evil. The technological worldview is we are just systems of uh, bodily desires, appetites that can be satisfied or not satisfied um, and he looks to the, the Soviet Union, he says is the, the embodiment of this antichrist spirit of technology because they want to as he says, Lenin wants to electrify the earth mm -hmm. that, that, that's the, the, purpose of the, the purpose of man on earth is to advance uh, technical precision, to, to light up the world with electrically and Schmidt compares that to, uh, for instance, the fl the votive flame in a church, the real fl you know a real mm -hmm. flame, and he says so someday when when the 
the votive lamps in churches are powered by the same electrical forces that power street lamps, then something will have been lost. And of course, that that did happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but so those are the two, those are the those are the stakes in his early thinking uh, that um, the the Soviets are the more radical view, the more radically technologically infected modern view that human beings are just material matter, that they don't, there's not something higher to them than just their bodies Mm -hmm. and just their bodily desires and material, uh, and that liberalism is somewhere in between. And so in this, liberals want to, they want to be uh, neutral, they want to solve technical problems without conflict. Uh, but he says in this work, at least, and he says even even Western socialists, he says even Marx is closer to the Catholic Church than he is to the Soviet Union, than he mm. is to this regime that, you know, pretends to be founded by Marx. He said because European liberals and European socialists still believe that that human beings are good and that, that there's something valuable, there's something elevated about the human spirit above its materialism despite what Marx may say about his materialism he actually believes in something transcending materialism and that the the Soviet Union embodies nothing but a pure materialism and along with that materialism comes an antipathy to rule moral guidance moral authority and so he saw technology as the the the, the last stage in a in a battle uh, in a, in a, in a in a trajectory of Europeans imagining that conflict can be avoided, uh, that human beings were purely material, um, and that it's best to be neutral Mm -hmm. on controversial issues. And he saw this opposition between Catholicism and the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. as a kind of a choice that Europeans had -hmm. to make. Um, so that that's that was his view at that time, and then later, as he became less Catholic, he was excommunicated in twenty six. He um, he he still maintained he still identified this what he called demonic spirit of technicity mm-hmm. with the Soviet Union, and that there uh, there was something very dangerous about if the Soviets succeeded in conquering all of Europe, they would extinguish something fundamental about about human beings mm-hmm. um, these choices about right and wrong the, the idea of moral authority the idea of hierarchy mm-hmm. which accompanies ideas of good and bad and um, he saw them as wholly obsessed with uh, technology and he said uh, I think the first the first line of an essay he wrote in 1929 is we in middle Europe live under the eyes of the Russians mm-hmm. and their power and vitality is great and they've been watching us carefully and they're prepared to steal our uh, our technology and industry as weapons to mm-hmm. use against us mm-hmm. so the, this is this is his world view in mm-hmm. the in the 20s this is uh, so I think that's from the neutralization yes exactly the What's the, the age of neutralizations and depoliticizations. The age of neutralizations and depoliticizations, uh, which I guess you co-translated. Yes, that's right. Many years uh, ago, yeah. There was um, one of the passages from that essay that um, really jumps out for me, and uh, also relates to some of what we talked about in this this podcast before, because it has this kind of media theoretical turn to it. Um, 
you you translate or quote uh, Schmidt as saying uh, there's something refreshingly factual about mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. These technical problems, you know, they, they seem so easy to solve. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in a certain sense, he doesn't say this, but uh, for those of us who may have some kind of liberal sympathies against the agonism of the public sphere, you know, we really love the idea of whether it's uh, whether it's global warming yeah. or or poverty. We love the idea of technical fixes. Right. Uh, and there's a there's he right around that 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 line. He has this other line where he cites. Uh, he talks about one of the other things is not technology isn't just factual, but it seems to serve everyone, and it seems to serve everyone equally. And he cites, I believe, uh, the postal system and radio as these wonderful things that everyone has access to these equally, regardless of you know it doesn't matter what people you come from or you know everyone is. And in in that, I mean, in that line, I mean, that was one of the lines when I was reading the the original essay. I started to see what what he's really talking about as technology as this neutral yeah, thing exactly unites us all solves the problems brings us all together that, that that's right and he thought that that was that was a false uh, image that was a, a illusion about technology mm -hmm. that it you know it's the idea that it's neutral therefore it's good therefore it can solve problems whereas he's thinking as he said with the with the um, the line about the Russians technology is first and foremost is going to be weaponry. Mm -hmm. And weapons are not neutral. And they don't serve everybody equally, mm -hmm. you know, because people don't have equal access to weapons and they make sure that they don't yeah. get equal access to weapons. <laughs> so, we, I, I mean, going back to the other text, um, Roman Catholicism Political Form, where he says that uh, uh, technology provide you know, technology provides us with things indifferent to their, to their moral worth. It Technology produces silk blouses and poison gas. Mm -hmm. So, this neutrality is false because there's a difference between silk blouses and poison gas. Mm -hmm. And um, so, the question is technology for what is, is going to be the ultimate mm -hmm. question? And he thinks this, the Soviets know what they want technology to do. They want technology to conquer <laughs> Europe and they want technology to equalize everybody. Um, but that's those are not neutral positions as far mm -hmm. as Schmidt, a uh, deeply inegalitarian and deeply uh, chauvinistically Western European. Mm -hmm. He's more chauvinistically Western European than he is even chauvinistically German, mm -hmm. and so that that is not neutral because those yeah. are those are things. Uh, good and evil is found for Schmidt in the preservation of hierarchy and the mm -hmm. protection of of Europe's tradition as the site of the good. Mm -hmm. uh, from from his viewpoint, but yeah, he uh, um, he's one of the first proponents of the false neutrality of, mm -hmm. of technology. The first authors of that tradition. And when uh, just to, to to get at what he means by technology, when 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 Schmidt's critiquing technology, when he's saying that there's this intimate relationship between liberalism and technology, mm -hmm. uh, does technology in this context does it mean um, a set of ideas and ideology? Does it mean actual machines that build and make things? What does technology mean in Schmidt? Technology is more the ideas. It's, it's more... Uh, technology is the, um, the idea that the world is there to be manipulated and that there are no boundaries to what human beings can do mm -hmm. uh, if they find the means... If they find the means to, to do something, they can do it. Uh, that's the spirit of technology. Uh, Technic is the uh, 
is the word he uses in the early essay in 23, but then later he makes it clearer that he's talking about a spirit, because he calls it the spirit of technicity, mm -hmm. technicity. The spirit of technicity is more is really more of a problem than the machines, than, mm -hmm. than the, the industrial machines of mass production, uh, although they wouldn't exist if it weren't for this pre-existing spirit mm -hmm. of technicity, of desire to manipulate the physical world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what he's talking about. Reading your book, um, there were passages where you're discussing Schmidt, you're explicating Schmidt, and I couldn't tell whether uh, what Schmidt and Heidegger were saying were incredibly similar or whether you were sort of slyly sort of provoking us to rethink Heidegger by telling us what Schmidt said that addresses the same problem and, and the same kind of framework. And so it's, it's not a very easy question mm. to answer, uh, but how kind of interwoven or overlapping is, uh, say, Schmidt's account of technology or his critique of technology mm. and Heidegger's famous works on such as the question concerning technology right. and a critique of the instrumental mindset yeah. where technology turns man into... Standing reserve. Standing reserves. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I had read Heidegger's uh, work on technology before I had ever encountered Schmidt, but then when I read Schmidt and got the same impression from his works that you're getting from my book, that they were in incredibly similar, uh, I made a, an effort to really just let speak, Schmidt speak for himself, let this, let this critique of technology speak for itself, um, and then we can honestly compare it with Heidegger. And you see, as, as you rightfully note, um, it's very, very similar. There's a, there's a similar pervading anxiety in both of their works, that there's something undermining of what's fundamentally human mm -hmm. in the spirit of technology. And I think, you know, it's not accidental that both of them are Roman Catholics uh, or started out as Roman Catholics and have uh, started out with a Roman Catholic understanding of human beings as, as much more than material, much, mm -hmm. much more... Uh, really in some sense spiritual entities more than bodily entities mm -hmm. and that that spiritual element is its tie to yeah. the divine um, and so even when both of them break with Catholicism there's still this fear that human beings will be treated as uh, as as just other other supplies other resources mm -hmm. other physical resources uh, material resources uh, and not something fundamentally different than that. Than that. That's a, mm -hmm. an enormous fear. And of course, the irony is, you know, they, they both of them wound up supporting uh, a regime that that treated human that more than any other, you know, maybe in competition yeah. with Stalin's Russia, treated human beings as with maybe less dignity than even material. Yeah. So that's a uh, an irony uh, mm -hmm. of of their positions. And so this, um, this this brings us to another another point in your book, and a point in Schmidt, uh, where one of say a, a complicated problem because it has so many exquisite layers, none of which can be we can do justice to today. Uh, but Schmidt has this critique where he says, uh, "Well, the thing about technology, far from rationalizing us, far from doing away with some type of." Mythological or primitive way of thought um, actually remythologizes yes. us. And and if I read your book correctly, it seems to be that you're saying we should take his his analysis, his critique, very seriously, um, and at the same time 
uh, you suggest that in a kind of imminent critique that Schmidt himself he sort of diagnosed the situation then he himself fell victim to a particular sort of right-wing or fascist mythology so can you can you talk a little bit about uh, this relationship between technology and mythology and also Schmidt's fate yeah well that's a great question I think um, I think Schmidt was thinking a lot about Sorel um, when he was saying that that I think that this this technological worldview that starts out being very rationalist and starts out being very materialist um, it can't quell the human desire for grand uh, grand achievement grand accomplishments mm -hmm. grand uh, uh, enterprises and so it undermines the traditional limits that classical philosophy, uh, scholasticism, natural law imposed on what human beings can do or should do. Mm -hmm. And then, so technology displaces all those previous limit-focused uh, philosophies and opens up limitless possibilities. Now human beings start to think beyond just the material things they can do. And so mm -hmm. you have in Sorel, this so now technology becomes attached to different kinds of myths, myths of the working class, myths of the nation. And these are all tied in, these kind of uh, very abstract ideas, or these uh, abstractly defined historical actors who are entitled to inherit the earth as, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, the meek inherit, inherit the earth, and will do so through technological means. Uh, so there's this, in Horkheimer and Dorno's word, there's an entanglement, an entwinement of myth mm -hmm. and rationality for Schmidt. And, um, you know, the, when you start to read his, how this ties back into his own uh, work and his own fate, as you put it, uh, when you read his own National Socialist work and this nonsense he writes about the party, and he starts writing the, you know, the party being the culmination of history, and Germany has realized itself in the person of Adolf Hitler, and all of that, and you, and you wonder where the, the you know, for all of Schmidt's um, conservatism, even his his fascism before he uh, joined the Nazis, uh, he was always a pretty honest thinker, and a, as you pointed out, a very down to earth, uh, fundamentals based thinker, and this. Um, he really allowed it, allowed himself to think um, that this great experiment of national socialism, the myth of the Fuhrer, the myth mm -hmm. of the party, the myth of the folk, that these myths somehow were the future. Uh, and uh, it's, I think he succumbed to his own myths that were tied to mm -hmm. uh, uh, technological thinking. Um, you know, later on he would he would say he wrote a book on um, Hobbes's Leviathan, and he said that uh, it's kind of an implicit critique of, of national socialism. And he said, you know, Hobbes's Leviathan was fundamentally a substantively good, uh, substantively Christian state. That the history of the state has become uh, an increasing mechanization. The state is just now a machine of oppression, mm -hmm. and basically he had. He had provided, he had helped to provide the myth supporting the machine of oppression that the National Socialist State was, that the Third Reich mm -hmm. was. He was complicit in that transition from the, from the Hobbesian Leviathan to the National Socialist State. And so one of, uh, 
another thing that leads us to, so we've touched on uh, the political context of Schmidt's work, the way it overlaps and intersects with Heidegger in almost astonishingly resonant ways, uh, um, which, which to me raises the question of how much we want to read or treat uh, Schmidt as a theorist of the situation of the Weimar Republic. I mentioned, I mentioned to you earlier, in the history of technology, there's a very important book, um, The Machine in the Garden, by Leo Marx. And one of the things that Leo Marx documents is, uh, so in the course of the 19th century, there emerges this concept of the technological sublime, where technology is going to liberate the nation, unite the people, it will give, uh, you know, the faraway, you know, autonomous, you know, faraway region a level of autonomous action because we're, we are so productive but it was also you know things like the railroads will connect us all together and so reading your book I couldn't help but think of Marx's account of 19th century America and again you see this you see this this provocative uncanny similarity but then also it does seem like so much of what Schmidt is doing is responding to the crisis of uh, the Weimar Republic so I mean to what extent can, can one say or do you say that we should read Schmidt as a general account of liberalism in our era or as an account of the failures of the Weimar Republic? I think that's a, a good question. I, I mean, he he certainly most of the writings are cast uh, and directed at the specific crisis in Weimar, but they, but uh, I would say their reception after that period shows us that you know wh- whether I think they do or should. They certainly have had influence mm-hmm. beyond beyond the Weimar period, and um, I think you know I think there are fundamental questions that Schmidt raises about liberalism in uh, its avoidance of uh, decisions, its uncomfortable its uncomfortable relationship with authority. Um, but I think you know different liberalisms are more comfortable with those mm-hmm. with those tensions. They're not contradict you know in a British context or in an American context, what Schmidt called uh, a, a contradiction between liberalism and democracy are just our tensions, right? Mm-hmm. They're not contradictions. Uh, so, so, but it's still, tensions are still tensions, right? And tensions are worth uh, philosophically exploring. And so Schmidt helps us do that outside of the Weimar context. But, but he is used, you know, unfortunately, he is used in contexts where there is a, a contradiction between Liberalism and democracy in constitutions or in societies, for instance, in in Latin America in the post-war world, where you know a lot of authoritarians were reading uh, mm-hmm. Schmidt and and thinking about saving what they called democracy from um, from leftists or pre- preventing their regimes from becoming the Weimar Republic and resorting to authoritarian means to do so. So, I mean, Schmidt was very popular among. Uh, uh, Pinochet's uh, circle, and uh, so it's, you know. But on the other hand, there's also you know, leftist 1968ers, you know, in France and post 68ers in France and in uh, Germany embraced Schmidt as well, and they just said liberalism is just a compromise mm-hmm. between uh, capitalism and socialism, and if we're going to have socialism, we have to we have to take Karl Schmitt's lesson to heart and we have to we have to seize the state for for socialism if we're going to have socialism if we're going to have equality mm-hmm. um, Schmidt is right liberalism is just a compromise and we should we should uh, there 
there's such a category as left Schmidtianism, you yeah. know, in, in Germany and in France. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think the work does have legs outside of um, the Weimar context, mm -hmm. for better or worse. And so, uh, this naturally leads to the question of what do we do with Schmidt? Um, and uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, it does. You, you unpack in a really persuasive way um, Schmidt's analysis that seems to identify some serious tensions and potential contradictions in liberalism. Its inability to address or solve certain problems um, and a, a, a troubling relationship to technology and technocracy that we can see in our in our own age, where sometimes, and I'd say not sometimes, probably in most cases, uh, you know, the more the more our uh, our Congress today breaks down, exactly. the more there's this call to form these committees that are going to go off in a, in a dark room and they're going to come up with some binding set of resolutions or procedures, technical procedures to solve problems. And we seem to, to recognize in this, on one hand, a last resort, on the other hand, not much of a solution at all. Uh, but, you know, you also see we live in this, we live in an era when something like uh, global warming. Yeah. Uh, we live in this astonishing era when in a seemingly modern, rational, forward-looking liberal society, uh, science is not a creditable uh, explanation of something that's a clear political problem like global warming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't help but think, you know, I would in many situations like to see more scientists right. and engineers constructively shaping our public life. So, uh, you know, today, what, as I said, what do, what do we do with Schmidt? Do we... Yeah. And where sh what, what should our relationship be to technology and politics? I think that's a great question. And Schmidt, the danger of Schmidt's thought is he does make us more inclined to say, for instance, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had a, um, a global war warming czar or a global warming dictator who would cut through all the red tape of parliamentary compromise and bargaining and quagmire and just get it done, do the things that need to get done to solve global warming as a problem. And that sounds great. And it sounds like that's, yeah, that we should have that. Um, but I think that's a, that's a very uh, dangerous temptation because um, empowering some, first of all, who would empower them? You know, what, what powers would they have? Would it be confined to global warming? Um, but, but let's say you could do that what's to prevent a single actor, a single czar, a global warming dictator from being any less and in fact perhaps more susceptible to corruption by the interests that, that don't want global warming addressed. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Weimar, from the standpoint of 1929, 1930, Weimar's parliamentary system looked horrible. It looked Ridiculous! It looked like nothing can get done here. There's no possibility of governance. Mm -hmm. From the standpoint of 36 or 37, when you're in the Third Reich, and then you're, the Weimar Republic looks like the Golden Age. So I think, um, you know, we have to remind ourselves what Schmidt did. You know, Schmidt said, President Hindenburg is the solution to our problems. We need to give President Hindenburg more executive emergency authority to solve the problems facing Germany. Well, President Hindenburg uh, conceded to make Adolf Hitler chancellor as, as part of that mm -hmm. solution. Uh, you know, Adolf Hitler never had a, uh, an electoral majority in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and yet out of this this bargaining that uh, happened under Hindenburg's watch his uh, and under his emergency powers you know Hitler is made uh, is made chancellor and that's that's the beginning of the end so I think there's a there's a Schmidt does make um, he does make the executive the energetic executive solution attractive and mm -hmm. we, we have to Remember, we, we might have to resolve ourselves to saying global warming is going to have to be uh, addressed through our very imperfect parliamentary mm -hmm. system because uh, even though it opens up so many avenues of access for those who don't want global warming addressed, um, it also offers avenues for those who do want it addressed. And we have to fight that battle out there rather than just give it to somebody who you know, mm -hmm. may or may not uh, uh, do what they promise to do or may get corrupted, more easily corrupted than the entire parliamentary system can be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, thanks for unpacking and introducing us uh, to Schmidt. Uh, just a reminder, so we're talking with John McCormick about his book, Carl Schmidt's Critique of Liberalism Against Politics as Technology. Uh, uh, this this book was my introduction to Schmidt, so I can strongly recommend it as an intro introduction to Schmidt. Uh, and if someone wants to, say, have a, an introduction to Schmidt by Schmidt, uh, do you have any recommendations of uh, good text to start with? Sure. The two works that uh, you you uh, uh, prompted me to mention, uh, Political Theology from 1922, I think it's a University of Chicago Press book, <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, The Concept of the Political from 1932, which is also... Uh, available in English translation from the University of Chicago Press. Great. Well, uh, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Bernard.